This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Most people think of bacteria as something that will make you and your pets sick. In reality, bacteria play a critical role in healthy fish, healthy ecosystems, and in well-balanced aquariums. Dr. Tim Hovannis, the founder of Dr. Tim's Aquatics, has been working in the aquarium and aquaculture field for decades. His graduate research revolutionized our understanding of biofilter bacteria, and over the years, he has designed numerous bacterial-based products that solve many common aquarium problems. Join us as we discuss the good, the bad, and the not-so-ugly truths about aquarium bacteria with Dr. Tim. We'll be right back with Dr. Tim after these messages. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Dr. Tim Hovannis, longtime aquarium enthusiast, scientist, and founder of Dr. Tim's Aquatics. Hi, Dr. Tim. Thanks for spending some time with us. Hey, Roy. How you doing? It's great to be here. Great. So you've been involved in the industry for such a long time. I, I, I like to ask some kind of background type questions, and, and one of them I, I really always have a get a kick out of is, is finding out about people's first fish and tank setups. Do you remember when you got your first fish and what your first aquarium setup was? I still have my first aquarium, and we're talking from the 1960s. My first fish were two goldfish that I won at an elementary school fair, promptly went home and washed out an old fish bowl that I had found, which I had no idea why we had it, with soap. Filled it back up with water, put the fish in it. The next morning, the fish were all dead. I was a small boy who wasn't very happy. Um, And my mom called her uh, brother-in-law, my uncle, who was a dentist. And he came over with a new Metaframe, Hida, Stora frame or Stora light, some type of aquarium, and set it all up for me. And I still have that aquarium. Well, that's uh, probably a collector's item at this at this point. I think I've seen a couple of those around down here in Florida, but yeah, definitely uh, hang on to that one. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I know some people that would offer pretty good money for that. So, how many aquariums and tanks have you had over the years, and what kind of, of fish do you have now uh, at this point? Uh, I have had uh, uh, probably everything. I, I remember being in the '70s looking around for a 
a Sanders protein skimmer because I had saltwater fish and people, you, what are you, what's that and why would you even want it? And I've had saltwater, freshwater. I've always been big into the cichlids. I'm past president of the American Cichlid Association and I've been the treasurer for 12, 15 years. I'm fond of rainbows. Right now, because of uh, the, the new company, Times Limited, so I've got cichlids and I have three koi ponds in the backyard. Well, that probably keeps you pretty busy too anyway, so that no, that's great. So how did you get into fish as a profession? What was kind of your, uh, your route to get into where you are now? Well, I, I uh, always was a big reader, and I, my parents were very in, encouraging about um, reading and investigating things. And for my 13th birthday... My mom took me over to Scripps Institute of Oceanography in San Diego, La Jolla, and she just walked into these offices. And these people were PhD professors. They were incredibly nice to this, you know, kid. And they took me around, and I found out you could make a living studying fish. And that was it for me. That's what I was going to be a marine biologist ever since I was a kid. So you have been involved, obviously, in all sorts of areas within the industry, both in aquaculture and aquaria. Can you maybe give us a little bit of a a quick run through some of the experiences you've had? Sure. After uh, my undergraduate degree, I'd been accepted to graduate school, but I also had spent uh, my junior year in Sweden studying limnology. And I really liked traveling. And I just knew once you get into graduate school and do postdocs that you're kind of set. And I wanted to do more traveling. I talked to several professors, and, and they said, you know, take some time off. Your position in graduate school would always be there. And so uh, I volunteered for the Peace Corps and, and got accepted and uh, went to the Philippines, where I grew uh, milkfish and panayed shrimp. It was a great experience. And then after working in the Philippines, I guess I know you were really active in, in other aquaculture as well. Is that correct? Right. When I got back and... Um, was working on my master's, this position came up. Uh, Some of the professors I worked with started a company growing striped bass in California. And I got in, I was the first employee of that company. And it turns out that what we were doing was illegal because the laws at that time in the state of California said you could only possess two striped bass and they had to both be dead. And so there were four of us, so we could have eight dead fish, which isn't much of a way to start an aquaculture company. But we uh, got the laws changed and started a uh, what was then and, and still is the largest striped bass and hybrid striped bass farm uh, in the country. It, it still goes on these days. It was a great experience. Uh, it went from research, which was what I'm primarily interested in, into the day-to-day farming we also did a lot of uh, consulting work around the world on different types of fish and invertebrates. So I got to do a lot of traveling to South America. We did uh, Africa, Central America, Asia. It was a great experience. That does sound very uh, tempting, and I'm sure you learned a lot as well on those travels. I guess, can you tell us maybe a little bit about Marineland, and then we'll start getting into some of the questions about biofilter bacteria since that's sort of where you started getting, I I think, a little bit more into the actual science behind it. Right. The four of us that had started this aquaculture company were all pretty much, we all were biologists. And once we'd figured out how to raise striped bass and raise a lot of them, 
we had to figure out the big step, which was how to sell them. And um, so I started doing a lot of trade shows. And Marineland Aquarium Products or Marineland Commercial Aquariums had these display tanks. And we'd put our bass in there and and one, being one that can't really keep their um, thoughts to themselves about how to improve things, uh, they kept on asking me and I would tell them, well, you need to do this and you need to do this on these systems. And then one day, um, one of the guys said, you've got to come in, up and meet the owner and founder of Marineland and talk to him about this. So I did. And uh, what was supposed to be like an hour long interview or just talk turned into a full day interview. And at the end of the day, he said, I want you to work for me. What do you need? And I laid out some ridiculous uh, requirements. And he said, okay, when can you start? And that was the start of me working at Marine Land Aquarium Products. Wow, that's uh, it's probably something you didn't expect, I'm guessing, then. So how did you get into the, the bacterial side of it and uh, decide to go back to school to get more in, kind of background in that? Well, it, it, up to this time, I really hadn't been – I wasn't a microbiologist. I was trained as a fish, a fish ecologist. I knew how to raise a lot of fish from the uh, Peace Corps and the aquaculture days. That's what I did. But when I got back into really setting up aquariums and trying to understand what was going on, and, and we did a lot of measurements with ammonia, nitrite, and nitrate, there was just things that started to fall together that there – were things we didn't understand. And it all got down to the nitrifying bacteria that from an ecological standpoint, where do they live? What do they like? Uh, how do you promote them and make sure you don't promote other maybe bad bacteria? And I couldn't really figure it out with the tools at hand. And I was at a cichlid conference that Columbus, uh, uh, Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio put on. And I heard this talk about these DNA uh, probes, these molecular methods to look at, at fish genetics and uh, evolution. And I thought, well, I can do this with bacteria. And it turned out that one of the world's leaders of this was uh, at UC Santa Barbara. And so I went to talk to him about it. And he was uh, had worked at a fish store when when he was younger and he really liked tropical fish and so he agreed to take me on as a graduate student to do these new molecular techniques on bacteria. Wow, so yeah, you, I remember sitting in on some of your talks early on when you were just starting to go through a lot of this and it was pretty fascinating. So I guess let's get to some of the big questions. What are some of the more common mistakes made by hobbyists with regard to water quality and, and I guess even starting with a new tank? Well, the biggest air or thinking that people have is that all the bacteria are the same. And, and I get this, you, you see it in the forums day in and day out, that it doesn't matter, say, what your ammonia level is or what your nitrite level is, that the tank will cycle and everything will be fine. And that's really not the case. What's been shown by myself and, and many other researchers is that there are a wide variety of ammonia and nitrite oxidizing bacteria, the so-called nitrifiers, and they have preferences. And the ones that grow in our aquariums and survive long term are very different than the ones that are, say, in a wastewater treatment plant or a sewage treatment plant. And they have different requirements. And chiefly, that is, they live in low ammonia 
or low nitrite environments, which makes sense. Our fish can't survive in high ammonia and high nitrite. So when you're starting out, you need to keep the ammonia levels and the nitrite levels low when you're doing your cycling, if you're doing a fishless cycling, or if you're going to add fish. It has to start out with a low level. When I say low, I mean below five parts per million. Would that be for both ammonia and nitrite? or Yes, or, both, okay. both ammonia and nitrite. In fact, there's a couple of studies that this woman did her PhD on the effect of higher ammonia levels or higher nitrite levels on ammonia and nitrite bacteria. And when you get to these higher levels, above 5, above 10 milligrams per liter, it actually has a negative feedback on the growth of the ammonia oxidizers and the nitrite oxidizers. And that's why, especially in a saltwater tank, people will say, well, my nitrite is stuck. I've had high nitrite for weeks and weeks. And that's because the high nitrite is actually negatively feeding back on the bacteria. They're not growing. They're not dying, but they're not growing. I recommend usually a big water change, get the nitrite value down to about two or three, and the whole system just accelerates and the bacteria go to work. Now, I guess, and this is maybe a little bit more of a science question, are there potentially other bacteria that might come in at that higher level or are they, they're just not going to be around? You know, Because I know um, it seems like in some cases things will kind of cycle through uh, maybe at that higher range, although I definitely agree with you in that it seems like a lot of times people just get stuck for you know months. Well, you do. The, the traditional nitrifiers, nitrosomonas europea, the ammonia oxidizer, and nitrobacter winogratsky, the nitrite oxidizer, they prefer the higher ammonia and nitrite levels. And that's why we know about these because a lot of our previous research on nitrifiers had been done on wastewater treatment plants, which have a lot of ammonia and a lot of nitrite. So we just assumed that's what was happening in the aquarium environment. And so if you have these higher levels, these bacteria will start to show up. The problem is, is once the levels go down and you start adding fish, if you're doing a fishless cycling or the system gets going a month or two after the levels have been high, you'll have another little mini cycle maybe. And what's happening is the bacterial community switching over from the high ammonia nitrite bacteria to the low ammonia nitrite uh, environmental bacteria. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So kind of like you were mentioning earlier that there are so many different groups that are working in the aquarium depending on what's going on with the water quality that trying to get that early group where you're keeping the levels low is really where you want to be to begin with. Right. It's better to dose a little bit several times a day so your values don't get too high rather than just pour a lot of ammonia in the system and have it spiking high and then waiting for it to come down low. Okay. And just to go back to the ammonia, so you think maybe keep if, you're, if you are using ammonia to start your system, keeping it at like two to three parts per million? Two to or three. Yeah. Keeping okay. it around there at two to three is just the sweet spot for these bacteria. And, and there's lots of cases where I've recommended that and people do that in a cycle is much, much faster than if you go up into the what's typically written and said in forums of, well, let it get to eight to ten. It takes a lot more time if you're going to uh, have a ambient value of 8 to 10 parts per million. 
What other parameters, water quality-wise, will kind of optimize the bacteria in terms of their ability to function? Right. The most important one is pH, uh, especially if you are fishless cycling where you're adding ammonia and you start getting the bacteria cranking and they're really going through a lot of ammonia and nitrite. That process is adding acid to the water, which is going to consume your alkalinity, your buffering, and that then your pH is going to drop. Once the pH gets below 7, the bacteria stop. And the reason is the ammonia oxidizing bacteria use ammonia, not ammonium. And at low pH, most of your ammonia is in the form of ammonium. And so it's in a form the bacteria can't use. So basically, they slow way down. And if you get near pH of 6, the process pretty much just stops. Now, you mentioned, and I know you've been involved with development of a lot of these bottled nitrifying bacteria. Now, they've been around for a while, a lot of these different products. What's kind of the evolution of the uh, bottled bacterial product? And can you maybe give us some insight what's different about the work that you've done with some of your products? Yeah, that's a very good question because if you've been in the hobby a long time, like I have, you're going to think, well, none of these bottled bacteria work. And it's because you've bought them in the past and used them, and they really didn't work. And and work means dramatically speed up the cycling process. You shouldn't see high ammonia and nitrite, and the whole cycle should happen in, say, maybe a week, 10 days, rather than 30 or 40 days. In fact, I have a letter that I wrote as a kid to a very well-known bacterial manufacturer asking for my money back because uh, I used their product and it didn't work. And the problem is not that they don't have, quote, nitrifiers. Some of these companies do, but they have the um, Nitrosomonas europea and the Nitrobacter winogratsky, which are the high ammonia, high nitrite bacteria. And these things, those bacteria just don't work in the environment of our aquarium. In fact, when I started my PhD, those were the bacteria that I was looking for with these molecular probes, and I couldn't find them. And because I was more of a fish guy and wasn't a microbiologist, the professor I had mentioned previously told me, well, you're just not very good at this yet. So keep, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so keep on working at it. But eventually it became pretty evident that they weren't there. And, and that's how, you know, I'm sure you know, that's how research works. I was looking for A and B, and they weren't there. And the obvious question was, well, you're not seeing them because they aren't there, so what's there? And that's what led me to the discovery of the whole new, the nitrospira and the different ammonia oxidizers through clone libraries and all this, this other technical stuff that we did. And then that's when that evolved into, well, no wonder these mixes aren't working. They're the wrong bacteria. So nowadays, we have the right bacteria, but they're, they're, they are under patent. But also what's important is these bacteria don't survive freezing. And so if you've got a case of these bacteria in the back of a truck, and this winter's been brutal, and they're in some distributor's truck going from store to store, uh, and it's in freezing, that kills them. Uh, so that now we've got distribution problems because you have to protect these from the extreme cold. 
So they're definitely a lot more touchy than we thought and, uh, and actually different from the ones we thought as well. I have uh, quite a few more questions and I think we'll have to take a quick break right now. So let's take our break and we'll continue our discussion with Dr. Tim Hovannis after these messages from our sponsors. Molly, here's your dinner. <laughs> Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Dr. Tim Hovannis, founder of Dr. Tim's Aquatics. Well, we went through a lot of some of the issues with cycling a tank properly and, and some of the challenges that were in the industry early on trying to figure out what the right bacteria were for the tank and, and all the work you did with, with actually determining the right bacteria. I know that there have been other questions uh, involved with startup in confusion as well. How do ammonia removal or binding products hurt or help the whole cycling process? I know a lot of folks kind of maybe use those as a, um, you know, a tool or a crutch, depending on your point of view. I generally look at it as, unfortunately, a crutch. Many of these ammonia removing products, if they're used to treat the new water that's in the aquarium, when you first set up the aquarium, or if you're going to do a 10% water change, they work fine. But to use them to try to control the the ammonia by removing the toxicity, say you've got a 30-gallon tank and you wake up in the morning and you're in the middle of the cycle and it reads 5 milligrams per liter, so you pour a lot of uh, ammonia-removing product in, you go to work or school, come back, measure it again, and now the ammonia is back up to 5 and you add even more, that turns out to inhibit the bacteria. They don't like these uh, ammonia-removing products, and it delays their development and increases the time span. So the best is to use those products only to treat maybe the new water, or generally I recommend you don't even really use them except in extreme emergencies, and let the bacteria go to work. You just can't speed the thing up with chemicals. Okay, so... In um, terms of use of those products, they may have a place, but if you're trying to cycle them, they're actually going to be maybe making things a little more complicated. Definitely. They definitely can be useful. But just like most everything else, overdosing or overuse is counterproductive, and you actually um, delay what you want, which is getting the natural bacteria to start working uh, quickly and efficiently. Now, if if you're using the right bacteria, let's say your product – what is the expected kind of cycling time or how long should it take to cycle a tank? 
That all depends on how many fish you put in there. But generally, uh, it cycles immediately. Cycling immediately means the ammonia is quickly being converted to nitrite and the nitrite is being quickly converted to, to nitrate within 24 to 48 hours. Now, does that mean that every bit of ammonia or nitrite is taken care of? No. That depends upon how many fish you put in the system. But our bacteria is used by major public aquariums. Um, we've done the, the London Aquarium, the Sea Life Aquariums, some very big public aquariums in the United States and uh, Asia. And these, their experience is that the system is up and f- the biofilter is functioning, functioning immediately and we keep ammonia nitrite below say one, two milligrams per liter during the whole period. Oh, that's great. Definitely. Um, and probably one of the major issues, obviously, with folks trying to get into the hobby is, is not understanding the cycle and not taking the time to actually do what needs to be done. And these products will help to really speed that up and make it more of a, a living fish exhibit versus a dead fish exhibit for these folks. So, okay, another question. I, I just set up a tank and, you know, it's been set up for a while or it's been starting to set up and now the tank water is cloudy so what is going on i've seen this you know a number of times i know folks talk about it what is the cloudy water syndrome that goes on with some of these tanks can you explain that yes that this is very typical i would say that 50 percent 60 percent of new tanks get cloudy water and what that stems from is a lot of times, well, what the cause is, is heterotrophic bacteria, which are different from nitrifiers. Heterotrophs use organics. They divide very quickly, and they can turn your tank into a, a milky white uh, display. It's like somebody dumped a cup of milk in there. And what's feeding them, a lot of times, are what we were just talking about. Some of these ammonia-removing products are organics. And when you start putting them in the system, when it's brand new, they feed these heterotrophs, which bloom quickly. Or there's other residues from the gravel or from the filtration systems that are organic in nature that get in this water, are recirculating, and feed the heterotrophs. Now, a lot of times people will say, well, that's the nitrifiers and that's the new tank syndrome which is completely wrong. Nitrifiers divide every 24 hours. You can grow nitrifiers for weeks and not have cloudy water. These other bacteria divide every 20 or 30 minutes. That's where you see this cloudy water. Okay, that makes sense. Now, in addition, I know, you know, being involved with a lot of the aquaculture industry down here and, and, um, you know, we've talked, you and I, about some of the various kind of methods or maybe new approaches for disease and other things. Probiotics have been around for a while. Can you um, talk a little bit about probiotics, I guess, in your experience and, and some of the things you think that it can be used for? Probiotics is an exciting field that's just starting to catch on. It's been in the aquaculture industry for a while, and it's using bacteria to fight off other bacteria and it works two ways one is through competitive exclusion and what that is is most of the bad bacteria in order to infect the fish and do their damage 
have to find a binding site inside the fish, the intestinal tract or the gills or the skin. Somewhere they have to bind and start burrowing in. Well, if you can take a good bacteria and have it get to those sites first, these binding sites, and and take up all the spaces, there's no room, there's no place for these bad bacteria to bind to the fish and they can't start doing their damage. And, and so that's a very promising approach and it definitely works. Competitive exclusion is a real phenomenon. The other thing that can happen is that bacteria extrude substances to fight and kill other bacteria. It's bacteria warfare. You know, bacteria want space and they want to keep their competitors out. That's just basic ecology. And so bacteria extrude a substance called bacteria sins. Sins Latin for kill, kill bacteria. And the trick is to find a bacterium that extrudes a bacteria sin that will kill another bacteria that you don't want. Just uh, natural you know, uh, control. And that's where we're looking and a lot of people are looking at developing those. It takes a lot of work because you have to do a lot of isolation and testing to find these bacteria. But it's a much more natural way to control diseases rather than dumping a lot of antibiotics and chemicals because there's no natural resistance. You don't have to worry about uh, discharges to water or creating these uh, bacteria that have, like I said, the antibiotic resistance. That sounds, um, yeah, definitely kind of the way everything is going. A lot of companies, I think, in general are trying to you know, be more green and trying to look at environmental aspects of their products as well. And definitely if something's going to be able to work well and not you know, add another chemical, if possible, then that's really a great way to go. Also, I had a question about, I guess, some of the, you know, we talked about cloudy water and obviously there's other reasons water gets cloudy. You've got some water clarifiers and you know, bacterial products that remove organics as well. How do those work and how are they different or, or not the same as probiotics? Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. And, and going back, starting at the probiotics, uh, people are a lot more receptive these days. It, it makes a lot of sense if you have a really nice aquarium. You don't want to add an antibiotic because an antibiotic is going to kill all the bacteria. And people realize that there are good bacteria that you need. And a lot of times by treating your display tank, you kill the nitrifying bacteria. Now you're back to cycling and ammonia and stress, and it, it just snowballs into the treatment being worse than what you originally had. The water clarifiers and the sludge busters, say you've got your tank set up, it's running, things are doing well. After a while, the tank just doesn't look as good. The water doesn't look clear. It maybe has a little smell to it, and you start getting these bacterial blooms that cloud the water. What I wanted was a product that didn't contain, again, chemicals. Most water clarifiers contain alum, which has aluminum in it, or they have polyacrylamide, which these work great, except that there's not a lot of room for overdosing. And the fact is, and when you're developing products, you just have to know this, people overdose. If you say add one capful they're going to try to speed the process up and add two or three or four. And so having a product that is right on the edge of toxicity 
is not a good thing because people will invariably add too much. So we developed a positive charged particle with a bacterium, that's what our water clarifier is, that basically is a flocculant. It's the same thing that most of these flocculants do. By having a positive charge, they bring together small elements or that or compounds or things that are in the water that won't naturally sink out. They bring them together to form larger particles. Those will sink and can be removed from your filter. The uh, last thing you asked about was the waste-degrading bacteria. And this is where what needs to be done on a regular maintenance. If you were asked to ask me what should people do on a regular basis in their aquarium, partial water changes and getting rid of all the organics in the system. If you let the organics build up, your tank is eventually going to look like the Amazon after the big rains, very brown or black like the Rio Negro. Not much lives in those. You know, some fish, and it's not very aesthetically pleasing for an aquarium. To get rid of this, again, we use bacteria. Now, there's a lot of these waste-degrading products. And like everything else, there's pluses and there are minuses. The minus is if you overdose these, they can have a really bad effect on your aquarium because they take oxygen to grow. So as I said earlier, these, these are heterotrophs. They can divide every 20 or 30 minutes, overdosing. They go crazy with all the organics in the water, but they're taking oxygen out of the water. So your fish are suffering. And I get cases at least once or twice a month where people have put some product in their aquarium that's going to remove the sludge, and they woke up the next day and all their fish were dead. And that's because they overdosed and there was an oxygen deficit, which suffocated their fish. So... With your product then, basically just making sure they're not going crazy and what kind of effects should they see in the, in the tank? It'll just stay more clear, I guess? It's very visual, you'll see. With, with our product um, and, and all of our products, the bacteria are, are ours, meaning we've isolated those bacteria from aquariums. Just like when we've, in the first part of this interview, we were talking about where do these nitrifiers come from that I found? They come from the aquarium environment. We didn't get them from somewhere else. For these sludge removers, the main thing to do is to add a little bit on a regular basis, every two, three weeks, depending on your fish load. And they're going to turn the organics into carbon dioxide, which is great for a plant tank. But you'll, the visual effect will be that your filter pad will stay cleaner, your water will stay clearer, and your gravel won't be covered. You won't have all that dirt in between the, the gravel particles and things like that. It's very noticeable when you use these systems. And you're also taking nutrients. As these bacteria grow, they're taking the phosphate and the nitrate out of the water and competing basically with algae for these nutrients. So they're not per se an, an algae control, but there's a competition going on there. And when you can grow the bacteria, that means that the algae can't grow because there's no nutrients for them. And definitely a, a lot of times people are having problems in their tanks with all the organics because you can get a lot of pathogens in addition to bacteria, parasites, and other things living kind of in those areas. So this definitely would help management, so to speak. 
I have another question for you, and we're unfortunately getting near the end of the uh, the interview. Uh, I have quite a few more, and you know I've learned a lot just in this short time, as well as when we've discussed various things in the past. But with your company, I guess, how do you come up with ideas for products, and how long does it take to develop some of these products? I go to a lot of meetings. I belong to a lot of societies, you know, the Limnology and Oceanography Society, the American uh, Society for Microbiologists, the World Aquaculture Society, and it's just listening and talking to a lot of people and then see, okay, how can we use that in our aquarium? How can we make aquarium keeping easier and more enjoyable for everyone? Time frames, generally it takes a year or two to really test and develop. You know, our company philosophy is science-based solutions, and my name's on that bottle, and I want it. It has to work, and it has to work how normal people are going to use it. We start in a lab, but then we've got to get it out. How is a person who's going to buy this at a pet store going to use it? That's how you have to do the final testing and make sure that it works in that in that application. With your crystal ball, where do you see the aquarium hobby in the next you know, five, ten, maybe twenty years. I think it's 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 go- growing and it's going to get a lot more sustainable. If you look at the saltwater side, people are growing corals. It wasn't that long ago where you couldn't keep corals alive. Now you can frag them and grow them. There's a lot more aquaculture of uh, marine fish. The freshwater side, a lot of the fish have all been farmed. And it's a great hobby for a you know, small apartment, somebody, it adds life, it adds color to the system. And as the research grows in lighting and in using bacteria, because even as the famous Stephen Jay Gould said, bacteria were here at the beginning, they're going to be here at the end, and they rule all aspects of the world, including our aquarium. And it's that one area that we've really not studied, and it's kind of that black box And that's what myself and there's others out there that are working on. And I think it's going to make it a lot easier to be successful and have an aquarium without, oh, you have to be a hobbyist and do all this work, which is kind of what people say, but it's not true. You're a true bacterial advocate, aren't you? I am. I've done. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, there's so many things when you start looking and and bacteria can get rid of radioactivity. Bacteria can do so much. And basically in this little pseudo ecosystem of an aquarium, the bacteria are key. If you want a healthy system, you've got to promote the right bacteria. And we're just starting to understand, understand that. And maybe sometime we can really go into how... The aquarium has shown or or been the impetus for many great discoveries in microbiology and microbial ecology in the journal published in Science and Nature, that little fish aquarium. It's an incredible source of bacteria. Well, I definitely agree with you, and I think the uh, aquarium hobby has really sparked even a lot of young scientists' interest in learning more about their world as well. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, and I, I really do want to thank you, Dr. Tim, and, and our producers for making the show possible. Dr. Tim, did you have any final words for our listeners? Uh, I would uh, just say thank you very much for uh, it, the time and your questions, Roy, and for listeners. The old adage of, I had an aquarium and it was too hard, give it another shot. The science, the technology, it's there. You can be a lot more successful and enjoy 
all the wonderful variety and colors of fish without a lot of time and effort these days. You'll be very satisfied and happy. Well, thanks again, Dr. Tim, for joining us. We're going to have your website link on the webpage, but why don't you go ahead and tell uh, our listeners what your website is? Uh, website is www.drdrtimsaquatics.com. Great. Well, I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy, that's D-R-R-O-Y, at PetLifeRadio.com, drroy at PetLifeRadio.com. If you're ever in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa, one of my favorite aquariums. Until next time, visit your local aquarium stores, buy more fish, keep your tanks and fish healthy, and remember, good bacteria are really important for a well-balanced aquarium. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.